0: My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here at North Shore Church. I'm going to read the scripture for today and then pray for us. Scripture is out of Luke 12, um, verses 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is, the one, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you were not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbled by your awesome teaching. Everyone here needs to value higher. I know I do. We all know this, even if we don't regularly reflect on it. We know that we don't value you in the way that we should Because if we did, we wouldn't put nearly as much value in the things of this world. If we valued you greater, then things in this world would not seem nearly as significant. We would then necessarily trust you more, and actually believe and live out the things you teach us. If we valued you the way we should, we wouldn't be so anxious and be worried about things going on at work or the problems we're having at home, or with our spouse, or the fact that we are short on funds this month. You said that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. So please help us to value you more and make you our treasure. Help us to see you as our most greatest treasure. Only you can truly fulfill us and bring us peace. So Father, as we talk about giving and being generous, help us to regard the stuff that we have with open hands and not be stingy. Because it's easy to make the stuff we feel we've earned our treasures. Help us to look at things as tools for a purpose and not just stuff to acquire. So Father, please help us to be generous. We pray for the the Bay Area Pregnancy Center this morning and the the baby bottle boomerang effort that raises money for it. That center provides such a needed service in this area, so I pray that this body would be generous in providing funds for it. We pray that, that you would provide direction and encouragement to all of us as we look to you in deciding what to give for this capital campaign, and in general, help us to all develop a lifestyle of generosity. And We pray for those that are dealing with illness or injury right now. We ask for healing and comfort. We also pray for those that need to make a big life-changing decision. We ask for wisdom and direction for that. And Father, all of this, the reason that we are even here, the point of it all, is that you would be glorified. If it doesn't bring you glory, we don't want to be part of it. So we ask that you would speak through Pastor Duncan this morning, and that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.
1: Week number three. Oh, the campaign. We're looking at the scriptures, obviously, more than we're looking at the campaign. We're looking at the campaign through the scriptures. So if you're here today and you're like, I don't know anything about a campaign, Lord willing, the scriptures will speak to you about your heart. That's where the real issue is, not in the coffer or the amount or the budget or whatever. We've seen as we looked at this for a couple of weeks that this area of financial generosity in scripture is vitally important to our spiritual health and we'll see even more why that is today. The scholars tell us that Jesus talked more about this area of financial stewardship than he talked about heaven and hell combined and no one in the Bible talked about heaven and hell more than Jesus, so that ought to give us some idea Of how important this is. The last two weeks we've seen how the power of the gospel in believers is actually choked off when we allow the things of this earth, this world, money, possessions, to compete with the things of God in our lives. When believers follow the pattern of this materialistic world, seeking to find our satisfaction, our joy in the things of this world, things that they count valuable, the power of God's grace, or what Paul says is fruit, is drained away from our lives. We saw from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 what the power of God's grace looks like in believers whose hearts have their treasure in God and not in the things of this world. As it relates to the campaign, we've seen that the way that a church our size can raise significant amounts of money in a way that honors God is if the grace of God opens our hearts and our checkbooks to give sacrificially and cheerfully. As that happens then our generation can improve this facility in ways that will benefit the current generations that will come after us and in that way we saw we can say thank you to the generation that went before us that give us what we're enjoying today. As it relates to the campaign, we've seen the, the way a church our size can raise money in such a way that honors God is to do it according to the Bible. God's grace comes to us in many forms, but the most powerful expression is the liberating power of God's truth in the Bible. We saw from Hebrews chapter four that as the word exposes the motives and the intentions of our hearts that we don't necessarily know are there Reveals to us the lies that we've believed about our wealth, and we saw that wealth is inherently deceitful. When that happens, then we can be free to be radically and cheerfully generous with what God has given to us. Another major concentration of the Bible's teaching on our wealth is one we haven't looked at, but we're beginning to look at it today, and that is the relationship between financial generosity and living with an eternal perspective. We hope to show this morning that when you look at the New Testament teaching on generosity and financial giving, how believers are to view our wealth, at the very center of that teaching is living with an eternal perspective on our lives and the stuff that we accumulate If our understanding of the biblical teaching on finances does not have at the center the eternity element, then we have a very shallow view about what the Bible teaches about money. If we're to have a New Testament understanding of wealth and money and money management, we have to have an understanding of living for eternity because you can't have one without the other. So the question becomes, what is it? What does it look like to live with an eternal perspective? Well, this is a summary, but I think it represents what the Bible teaches. Living with an eternal, or sometimes people call it a kingdom perspective, means that you believe in your heart. That when believers are converted to Christ, they are brought out of this world, and they're brought into the kingdom of God. They're given eternal life, and they recognize Jesus as their king. Now, a crucial implication of that is that this world is no longer our home. We understand and we celebrate the truth that our citizenship is now in heaven. It's been transferred from this world to glory, where Jesus now reigns as king. For the believer, this world has become the place in our journey where God prepares us for heaven and where we live as aliens and strangers on a short-term missions trip. Though Jesus has given us great joy in this world, we don't live for this world or the things in it. They're simply tools that God uses to make us like his son. We live for the glory of God and very much look forward to when we can go home to heaven And be with our King. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have to die to be with Jesus. Being with Jesus is the ultimate good. Therefore, death is gain for the Christian. That's what it is to live with an eternal perspective. And more than any other truth in the Bible that has radical implications for how we understand our wealth and how to use it. Believers are in this world, they're not of this world. Our happiness is not dependent upon possessing the things of this world because we own nothing in this world anyway. It belongs to our King. Our great treasure is Jesus. The things of this world are simply the resources that God has loaned to us so that we can use them to honor Him. Now, if that's true about what we believe we will, without exception, hold very loosely the things of this world, money, wealth, possessions, because our joy and our contentment is not found in them, but in Jesus. Okay? I hope it's obvious, just after that very brief summary, why the New Testament so consistently connects the topic of financial generosity with having this eternal perspective. If you have genuinely lived with an eternal perspective, you cannot help but be a very generous person because it's baked into having an eternal perspective. If you owe nothing but are simply managing God's money and you're living for the glory of God and God is glorified as we show his supremacy by giving our money away, then it absolutely follows that you will be sacrificially and cheerfully generous. It's equally true that to the degree that you do not live with an eternal perspective, you will not be a person who is sacrificially and cheerfully generous. And that tells us that, as we've seen, the fact that the average evangelical gives 2.4% of their income to the Lord has far less to do with prevailing economic conditions than it does with our failure to live with an eternal perspective. The danger of living in a wealthy place like America, where we have, comparatively speaking, so much, is that the deceitfulness of our riches that we've seen Jesus talk about can deceive us into unknowingly living as if this place were home unknowingly living as if this place were heaven. For many believers who are not sacrificially generous, their main problem is not with money and wealth. It's ultimately that they live as if this world, not heaven, is their home. This morning we want to turn to two teachings from Jesus and the Gospels that are saturated with and driven by this eternal perspective. Our hope is that God will use the truth of these teachings to expose and repudiate any lies that we have unknowingly believed about money and the treasures of this world. In the text that Brian read, and we're only going to look at about a third of it today, Jesus exposes and he debunks a particular lie. And that lie is that the wealth or the things of this life are of ultimate value or our ultimate treasure is in this present world. That's another way of saying it. Now, very few genuine believers actually believe that in their heads. They know that's not true. Their theology tells them that the things of this life are not of ultimate value. But knowing something in your head and believing something in your heart are two very different things sometimes. James 2.17 reveals the difference between the two when he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If your faith is in some truth, does not produce a change in behavior, then it's not living vital faith. James says that it's just a truth that you believe in the same way that demons believe in God and tremble. The old paraphrase of that truth is, what you believe, you do. All the rest is just religious talk. Now when it comes to the subject of money, many in the church in North America have a religious talk That communicates that what is really of value to them is not the things of this world, but the things of God. But when the average evangelical gives 2.4% of their money to the Lord and only 13% give a tithe, that means that on the topic of financial generosity, there is a lot more religious talk than there is living faith. The truth is, the way we live, and the way we spend, and the way we give betrays the truth that many of us really believe. Even though we know it's wrong, what we really believe, the lie in our heart, is that the things of this earth are of ultimate value. So let's look at what Brian read earlier, in the hope that the Word of God, which debunks this lie, would reprogram our hearts to create real, living faith. In Luke chapter 12, he tells us one day as Jesus was teaching, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, many of you know that in the Old Testament, Old Testament law, which of course they were under at this point, it gives a disproportionate share of the inheritance to the firstborn son. Now, there were reasons for that that were actually good for the larger society, but if you were not the firstborn son, you could feel cheated. That's where this guy was. And so this man in the crowd tries to get Jesus to arbitrate a dispute over the inheritance in the hopes of gaining a greater percentage. Luke records Jesus' response in verse 14, but he said to a man, "Who made you a judge? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you?" So Jesus makes it clear that it's totally inappropriate for him to be ruling on that kind of matter, but more importantly, he issues a warning. A warning that I hope is familiar to us by now. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you hear again how Jesus warns about the stealth attack that money can wage against our hearts? He says of covetousness, or we could call it greed also, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. The 10th commandment, of course, is against coveting. Now, if the man in the crowd had been about to break the 6th commandment and murder someone, Jesus would have said, don't murder. Or if he was violating the 3rd commandment, he could have said, stop using the Lord's name in vain. Or with respect to the 5th commandment, he could have said, don't dishonor your parents. But about coveting, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. There is a preventative measure where covetousness is concerned. Because as we saw last week, covetousness is a sin of our hearts. It's not as easily detected as using the Lord's name in vain or committing adultery. So Jesus says, be careful. Keep your eyes peeled. Be vigilant. Keep your guard up against the subtle sin of covetousness. His warning implies that covetousness can easily sneak underneath our spiritual radar, and the implication is so we have to be intentional. We have to be deliberate to specifically guard against covetousness. We can never simply say, "I know I'm fine," because after all, I'll give my 10 percent. For 10 percent, for some people, 10 percent is very generous. For other people, it's it's paltry. Then Jesus reveals why covetousness is sinful. He says that's because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here, Jesus directly confronts the lie that wealth or the things of this life are of ultimate value. Jesus is saying an abundance of possessions is not what life is about. They used to have a bumper sticker. One of my relatives had it on his t-shirt one time. It says, He who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus openly confronts that lie. And he drives that truth home with the parable that he tells. It says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So this landowner in the parable is rich to begin with. Okay, the land of a rich man. And he has a very good year agriculturally, and that makes him richer still, to the point where he runs out of storage space for his crops. And so he does what rich people in this world do all the time in that context, and that is he increases his storage potential, or he wants to do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with increasing your storage in and of itself. Saving money is a consistent biblical value. John Wesley said, make a lot, save a lot, give a lot. He's right. The problem is this man was already rich, and it doesn't occur to him that as a rich man, he doesn't need any more money, and that perhaps there are other uses for his goods other than simply accumulating more of them. We know this is a thoroughly self-indulgent guy because he says in verse 19 about his bigger barns he's going to build. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is where many people in this world would reject this story because they would see nothing wrong with this man's attitude. I mean, in in many ways, this is the American dream, the way it's couched today in a lot of places. The reason Jesus finds fault with him is because he's only thinking of himself. He's not saying, you know, I don't want to be a burden to my family as I get older, so I want to put back suitable retirement. He's not saying, you know, I want to put back some money so that if a particularly worthy cause is presented to me, I'll have money to donate to that cause. No, this is, this is about himself, this is conspicuous consumption. This is about, I don't need to work anymore because I'm going to spend the rest of my life partying. This is like the couple that John Piper read about in Reader's Digest, who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on a 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Okay, to many, that's the American dream. And we in the church are naive if we believe that swimming in this ocean, we have not been in some way impacted by that. In that context, Jesus' command of the church is the same as it was to this covetous man, and that is, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Jesus finishes the parable in verse 20. He says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul, remember he's been talking about My soul will do this and my soul will do that. He says, so my soul, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man, who God pronounces a fool, had believed the lie that life ultimately consists in what you possess. But that lie was connected to another lie this man believed, and that is you have ultimate control over your life. This man lived as if God was not in the picture. This is, he's the master of his fate. There's no eternal perspective here. He lived as if this world were heaven, and he was going to enjoy it. And God steps in and says, I don't think so. And so he jolts him back into reality, says your life is over. There's a complete waste here. This man who believed that his soul was something that he could enrich— Assume that he could control how long his soul would live. He's deceived, and Jesus calls him a fool for believing these lies. Now, a good question, of course, at this point, especially in our culture where this man might be envied for his wealth, is, well, what would Jesus have this man, and by extension, us, do with our money rather than store it up for one long party, frequently called retirement in our culture? We don't half too far to look to get the answer. He says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus tells us to give it away and provide ourselves with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. There's the eternal perspective coming in, right? Now, at this point, Jesus is saying essentially the same thing he says in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where again, on this topic of generosity, he speaks about having an eternal perspective. And back in chapter 6 of Matthew, he says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If the lie that Jesus exposes and confronts in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12 is that wealth and the things of this life are of ultimate value, the lie he deflates here in his teaching is this. Our wealth and how we view or how we manage it has little relationship to heaven and our eternal life with Jesus. That's a whopper. That's a huge lie. Many in the church believe that how we manage our wealth in this world will have little impact on our eternity. This text says exactly the opposite is true. He begins, rather innocently, Jesus does, in verse 19, by making a very practical point about why it's foolish for us to lay up or store up in abundance large amounts of wealth. And the reason is because the riches of this world are perishable. Some things of this life perish slowly from hungry moths or maybe from rust. Our gold and silver will not rot, won't rust, but they can be stolen and then they instantly disappear. Jesus is revealing a very common sense truth is you should never put your hope in something that is a perishable resource. Next he says something that probably Struck his audience as a surprise. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus says, rather than store up your wealth in the world where everything perishes, store it up in heaven where it will be kept forever. The remarkable and I would assume unexpected truth is found in these two words for yourselves. Now, we expect Jesus to say something like, don't store up treasure for yourselves here, but instead store it up for God in heaven. That's not what he says. He says, lay up for yourselves. For yourselves treasures in heaven. Randy Alcorn in his wonderful little book, The Treasure Principle, says you can't take your money with you but you can send it on ahead. That's true, that's what he's saying. If we give our money away for kingdom work, which is what he's talking about here, we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven are not in the form of silver and gold. Gold is no treasure in heaven. They use the stuff to pave the streets. According to Psalm 1611, the real treasure in heaven is our joy in Jesus. David says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you were in the Eastern culture, you would know that to be at the right hand of someone is to have intimate fellowship with them. That's the true treasure of heaven, pleasures forevermore, the eternal pleasures of being in close fellowship with Jesus. And amazingly, Jesus says, you can actually increase the joys you will experience in heaven for all eternity by using your money for his glory in this life. Okay, that's astonishing. I would never in a million years believe that if it weren't in the Bible. It just seems fanciful to me to believe that something like the money God has loaned us can be used in ways that will increase our joys eternally. But that is exactly what Jesus is claiming here. Do you see how this completely debunks the lie that our riches and how we view or how we manage them has little relationship to heaven and our eternal life with Jesus? The first reason we've seen is because Jesus makes clear how we'll use our wealth in this world. will have a direct input on the joy that we have in heaven and experience with Jesus. But there's another truth here that Jesus also reveals that confronts the lie, that how we manage our money here has a little relationship to our eternal existence in heaven. And that's in verse 21 where he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice the connecting word, for he begins that sentence with, which means he's relating it to what came before. It means because. Jesus is saying that the reason we should not accumulate treasure on earth is because that reveals your heart. That is, what you value, what you cherish, what you worship are the things of this world. It reveals that. Jesus is saying that if your treasure is here, then your heart is here. And if your heart is here, it's not with Jesus. Jesus is saying that the locale of your treasure is an indicator whether you worship Jesus or whether you're an idolater chasing after the things of this world. But it's not just that the treasure we give to the kingdom will be sent on ahead. Jesus reveals here that there is an unbreakable connection between where we place our treasure and the affections of our heart. Again, this is remarkable to me. Notice that when Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's not only making a diagnosis of a person's heart here, he's doing that. Okay? But he's not just saying, You can tell what's important to you by where you give your money. He's saying that. That's true. But Jesus states the location of our treasure is not only a diagnostic tool to determine what is important to us. He also states it as an axiom. Where you invest your treasure will be where your heart is. You get it? That means if you want to treasure something or someone more than you do now, you can determine where your treasure will be by giving more of your treasure to it. Okay, this is amazing, because that tells us that God actually uses our generous giving to him to increase our affection for him and the things of the kingdom. That means that one indicator that the church in North America is lukewarm is because God's people put comparatively little of their treasure in God. The fact that only 13% of the church tithes tells us that there's not much intense affection for God. But this statement of Jesus also communicates that if a believer wants to treasure God and the things of God more, if we want the affections of our heart for Jesus to grow one way that happens is by giving more of your material treasure to the things of God. It's like we've many we've all experienced this. Someone says, you know, I just don't care all that much about world missions. I don't care much about world missions. Okay, my advice to them is go on a short-term missions trip. Invest a week of your time there. Put your money there. Guess what? Your affection for missions is going to go way up. This is what life is. If you want to know why Jesus speaks so much about our treasure, this is the reason. When Jesus speaks of our treasure, he's not talking only about our money, but he's, he's talking about what we, again, what we worship, what we cherish, what we value, what we prioritize. That includes our money, but it also includes our time and energy. In light of this connection, Jesus draws between where we invest our treasure and the affections of our heart. If you want to love, for instance, the Church of Christ more than you do, invest more of your treasure into her. That may include giving money, may include getting more active in the ministry of the local church. You do that, you're going to love the church more. What we treasure or worship or cherish controls how we live. Verse 24, Jesus reveals one way that it controls us when he says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says that what we treasure or worship or cherish in some way enslaves us. The master he speaks of is not an employer. It's a slave master. We become enslaved to what we cherish, to what we treasure. And slave masters by their very nature demand exclusive devotion. A believer by definition is not only son of God, not only a friend of God, but also a bond servant, a love slave of Jesus Christ. This is the way Paul introduces himself all the time in his letters. This is the only kind of enslavement that liberates. We're never more free than we're enslaved to Jesus because Jesus' master always and only does what is best for us. When the treasures of this world are in control of our heart, our enslavement to them is destructive because they pull us away from God, as Brian was praying. It's amazing that something as seemingly benign and morally neutral as money... And the things of this world have the power to either destroy us or bring us closer to God and the eternal pleasures of heaven. But they do, and that's why Jesus talked about them so much. I hope we see just how important this matter of financial stewardship is on a purely spiritual, individual level, me me and God. This campaign is just one opportunity for us to do some important heart work using the resources God has given us. God uses opportunities like this campaign for us to give generously because they reveal where our treasure is, but it also enables us to build affection with God. (laughs) That's an amazing thing. What we've seen today tells us that our giving is not just a way to diagnose where our hearts are, though it does that, it's a way for us to redirect where we want our hearts to be by putting our treasure. Because where we put our treasure, our hearts will follow. You can redirect your heart toward God by giving to missions or some other kingdom venture. It doesn't have to be the campaign. God has laid those things on your heart, then go ahead and give. But for those who are attending here, who are committed here, this campaign is an opportunity God has provided for us to grow spiritually. This is why this excites me personally. I hate fundraisers. Fundraisers are just a way to make people feel guilty, but I can really get into something that's going to cause us to grow spiritually. How glorious that this new chapter, same gospel, is not ultimately about fundraising. It's about how we can make an eternal difference in our lives and the lives of other people, And as we're in the process of doing that, we can not only diagnose where our hearts are, but we can also change the affections of our heart as God's grace works through the generosity to make us more like Jesus. May God give us the grace to trust him and see the fruit he produces on us in this life and the next through our God-enabled generosity for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, again, I'm amazed at the fact that you would use something like money. It's benign. It's morally neutral as it's sitting on a counter somewhere in a bank account. But you use that to make us more like Jesus, to cause us to treasure you. And God, any believer, wants to treasure you more. And so, God, I pray for all who do know you, that you would just enable them to take you at your word and to trust you, and to test you. And God, that this would not be about giving to brick and mortar. It would be about having the affections of our heart enlarged toward Jesus. And Father, if there are people here today, and they've been listening to this, and they're hearing about this eternal perspective and the affections of our heart for Jesus, and they're thinking, I don't understand this. This is not what I understand Christianity to be. Father, I pray that your spirit would just enable them to see they're not saved. And they've been deceived, if they think they are. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would cause them to see their sin, what separates them from you, and God, the great wisdom of being able to look at Jesus and saying, you're more important than all the things of this world. God, would you, by your Spirit, do that work for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.